Hello, everybody. Welcome to another edition of Wrestling with the Future. I'm your host, Psyche Meet Angelo, joined by my co-host, Dan, the man, Sebastiano. Daniel, how are you? Good, Angelo. How are you doing? I'm wonderful. Baron Von Kelleher, Mike Kelleher, how you doing, brother? I am in a dastardly mood. I am great. Dastardly and great altogether, huh? <laughs> yeah, well, when you're a baron, you're supposed to be like... A evil super genius or something. So, um, well, I'm, you kind of look like Snidely Whiplash right now. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know, and the resident movie maker, Mike Messier, documentarian, filmmaker, actor, producer, writer. This guy just does everything. Glad to be here, Mike, Angelo. What your film company's called uh, Man in a Camera. What, what is it? Yeah, pretty much Man in a Camera Films. I've been using that, uh, name for about 15 years now and it i mean it's really the diy aesthetic you know what i mean just if you have a man if you have a camera and these days uh men and women have cameras on their phones so i mean a lot of people can be making films or at least starting to do something creative in that realm without right. a lot of money or or anyone else's permission so i always encourage people that if they have a if they have an idea for a film to write something shoot something do something don't wait for anyone else's permission Right. Well, I'll tell you what. We're going to talk a little bit about our guest last night. We had an amazing guest last night. Getting a lot of feedback on her show. She, uh, She's a woman that's not shy about her opinions and doesn't hold back. Of course, uh, talking about Karen McDaniel with us last night. And she is a hoot. <laughs> Karen was a hoot. And Dan, that was your first introduction to Karen McDaniel. What'd you think? Your, your maiden voyage, by the way, was your first time out. Oh, uh, was it was, uh, I, I think it was a great introduction and it was growing up. He was one of my favorites. It was nice to hear a lot of those stories and you could tell there's so much more there. I look forward to a chance to talk to her again. And you will probably in another two weeks. <laughs> I spoke to her today. She's all excited about coming back. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. Mikey, what did you take from last night's conversation with Karen? Well, you know, Karen is uh, spectacular and you can see why. Wahoo would have uh, the interest in her as a person because she's very dynamic, take no BS type of person. And for these pro wrestlers, especially back in the 70s and 80s and 90s, when things were really like the wild, wild west, they they right. needed someone like a Karen McDaniel who was a strong person uh, to balance them. You know what I mean? So Sure. I mean, it's it was a good conversation. Baron Von Kelleher, you were with us on the first show with Karen. Mm-hmm. What were your thoughts on uh, Mrs. McDaniel? Uh, she was a she was awesome. I mean, I, I just had a really good time, kind of like what what these guys were saying, just listening to her stories. And um, you know, I I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall in some of her uh, really important moments in her life because she she witnessed a lot and she probably caused a lot of things to happen if you will so yeah oh absolutely yeah she's a very unique lady speaking of unique we have a guest tonight that stands tall and above those that are unique different and unusual because he is a successful singer songwriter accomplished musician actor writer producer and he survived the world of wrestling, and that makes him unique and special. That's true. 
mm-hmm. you know, and uh, having done that, made his name and his mark. We all know his music. Not everybody knows his name, and that's a shame, but uh, through our show, thankfully, we have actually had requests to have him back, and he is back tonight. He gave us What a Rush, Superfly, Sexy Boy, Do the Bird, Demolition, High Energy, All American Boys, Rock Out, Common Man, Boogie, Oh My God, Haircut, I'm the Mountie, All About the Money, Cool, Cocky, and Bad, you name it. He, he has written just about every successful ring entrance theme, along with his partner, Jimmy Mouth of the South Heart, that I think, uh, I think people even today uh, are, are somewhere in the world singing, I'm a sexy boy. I'm a cool. <laughs> <laughs> Let me introduce you to the man. That, uh, that really does, in many ways, need no introduction, but I'm going to give him one anyway. He is, as I said, a singer-songwriter, accomplished musician. He is the most successful wrestling theme song writer in history. It is my honor to introduce my friend, his most important credential, he is my friend, <laughs> Hurricane John J.J. McGuire. J.J., welcome back. Thank you so much, and hey guys, how are y'all? It's great talking to y'all, and thank you for all those accolades, and that's so kind of you to say those words, and I really appreciate it, and I appreciate all the great wrestling fans and people around the world who got a lot of out of the music and had fun with it, and and still listen to it, which surprises me after all these years and beers, uh, it still seems to be popular. Well, you know, JJ, I was going to ask you about that. Do you ever get people come up to you and start singing your songs to you? Yes, yes, I do uh, quite often. I sure do. Mm-hmm. Is is that an odd kind of feeling? It, it, I, I imagine JJ. It's kind of like being an impressionist, you know, uh, and and doing the person in front of them. Pretty much so, uh, but I don't mind because I love the people so much. We. It wouldn't amounted to anything or meant anything at all without the people and the fans and everybody that enjoys it and supported it, you know. And uh, I would have just wound up being another uh, parlor piano player had it not been for the great world of wrestling. You know, JJ, I introduced you as a, a successful and accomplished singwriter, a singer songwriter, musician, you know, and my friend. And I should tell people, JJ McGuire and I are friends. And we speak yes. often, and yes. uh, there are things I don't ask JJ because it would spoil an interview. So I'm <laughs> going to ask you a couple of questions tonight that we've not talked about. Right. I you you wrote a a really and you know impressive book, a compelling book called Hollywood: My Life in Heaven Town, and uh, a lot of people know you, of course, as the WWE Music Man. But you've done so much more outside the world of wrestling that a lot of people may not know about. I want to talk a little bit and delve into tonight uh, a little bit of uh, your Hollywood experience, uh, your Nashville experience. And if you're a game, I'd like to talk a little bit about music and uh, and wrestling uh, from your point of view as a fan of wrestling. Are you game right. for it? Um. All excited. Uh, I've got bells on my toes and rings through my ears. 
I love it. That's a picture and a half. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, let's talk about a little bit about the book. When we left off, um, we hadn't even gotten really into what you've done out in Los Angeles. We we spoke largely about wrestling, uh, a little bit about um being involved with Hulk Hogan's boot band and writing that album and uh and and life in Nashville. You know, of course you're you're very familiar with the Nashville music scene, but give people an insight, JJ, into the world of Hollywood, this this world that everybody you know, uh, wants to be a part of every, you know, everybody wants to be a star. They all want to be known and discovered and, uh, in some way adored shed, you know, let's peel the, I'm sorry, I'm dropping my microphone, JJ. Let's pull the onion back a little bit, JJ, and talk about your experience in Hollywood. Was it overall a generally a good one or were there, were there times when you thought to myself, you thought to yourself, I got to get the hell out of this town. Oh, I loved it from the first day I arrived. Uh, the way that I wound up out there is uh, I listed my name where there was a worldwide listing agency for musicians uh, that was posted uh, around the world through newspaper. And, you know, we didn't have uh, the computer and uh, Internet and everything like we have now where it's right. instant. But so I paid 200 bucks to be a lifetime member of this agency that circulates your information and what instruments you can play and experience level and uh, so forth. And so the first call that I received when, as soon as I got out there was from the Rolling Clones. They were the world's number one Rolling Stone tribute band. Okay. That's funny. And they were interested. They wanted me to be the Charlie Watts of that outfit. Uh, I thought that was interesting, but I told them, and they were making great money, I mean, doing this. So they were, you know, the top dog on that uh, uh, one of the first uh, actual tribute groups that existed, I believe, actually. Wow. And they were worldwide known and uh, booked. And But I told them, I said, it sounds really great, and I love the Stones, but I'm looking for something original. Uh, you know, I'm not looking to uh, be in a tribute band or do copy music, uh, even though it's great music and what have you. So then I got a call from a group called The Keys, K-E-Y-Z. And they were a new wave power pop band that we called. And to break that down for people to wonder, what is that? Uh, that's uh, like the Knack, if you remember. Oh, My sure. Sharona. My Sharona. Right. Yeah, skinny exactly. Ties. Short hair, skinny ties, and tight fitting britches, brothers. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I thought, well, that sounds interesting. And so I got all my stuff together to make my trip out. And right as I got ready to go the night before, I got another call from somebody who saw my name listed with the agency. And this is going to blow your mind. And these guys said, we're from Atlanta, and we're the new type of alternative music. And I went, Yes, I'm familiar with all. I'm, I'm more of a hard rocker and classic rock. Well, we call it classic rock today, but then it was just basic rock, hard rock at that time. Right. And uh, he said, we're into this new genre called uh, alternative music. Yeah. And he said, we're college guys, and we're real popular around Atlanta. And uh, he gave me a name, and it was just a kind of generic name. And uh, 
So I said, well, that sounds interesting, but uh, I'll be honest with you. I said, I'm not looking for, uh, you know, alternative music. I'm looking more for straight ahead rock and whatever. And uh, it turned out that they were, uh, their drummer just recently died. I'm trying to think of their name. My memory is is gone. R.E.M., thank you very much. Yes, sir. It was R.E.M. Yes, thank you for that. And uh, at any rate, he described the music to me and everything, and I said, well, it sounds like a real nice thing, but, you know, I'm just into a different genre, but I'm sure you guys would do real well. Oh, wow. And we know how that turned out. So, yeah, right. uh, yeah that was, they, they were, it was, they turned into REM. Their first name was something different, but they were just playing around the Atlanta scene, you know? Sure. So, uh, anyway, <clears throat> so I got with this Keys group and we immediately got a deal at Sound City uh, with Joe Gottfried and Tom out there that was, uh, you know, they were the uh, kingpins of the California sound, of course. Oh, yeah, and, absolutely. Um, and so. I'm old. I remember uh, that. <laughs> yes, and we're old enough to know. And uh, so, uh, actually, their agent came to a club called Blackies that's at the beach in Santa Monica. He actually was coming oh. to hear another band for possible signing. Well, they were sick, and they had called us earlier in the day at the 11th hour and said, you know, we're sicker than heck out here. We can't sing or do anything. Would, would the keys, would you all mind covering for us at Blackies with two other groups? Well, Sure. Well, that agent was sitting out there and he came to see that the other group, it was ill and he didn't know they didn't call and tell him that they, that they weren't going to make it. They just figured they were going to be there. Yeah. Well, they heard us and immediately came running up and it was Les Emerson who was in the five man electrical band from Canada. Oh God. Sure. And he was a lead singer and guitar player and he was working for sound city as a A and R agent looking for talent. For Joe right. Godfrey signed it, owned it. He just had a fit. He jumped up and ran up there. We did all original material, of course. I was the drummer, and it was the the other guy's material. You know, I didn't write any material. I just added, you know, the drum parts and and whatever. Right. And he said, "Do you guys? I came to hear the other group, and I'm glad they're sick." He <laughs> said, "He said, come out to Sound City." I went, "Sound City? Oh my gosh." He said, come to Sound City on Tuesday, and we've got something to talk about. So we go to Sound City on Tuesday. We set up in the rehearsal hall. Devo is practicing right next door to us in the same (laughs) complex. Um, The Babies were cutting their album right across from us, and Tom Petty was recording, and Rick Springfield. uh, uh, We're all out there at the same time together. It's a lot lot of talent under one roof. Yeah, yeah, under one big complex there, but... So uh, pretty excited on that. So we did four single sides because you still had, you know, vinyl, 45 RPM and 33 and thirds, which is back bigger than Christmas now. But uh, anyway, so Joe Godfrey came in. He said, let's hear it. So we went through our routine and the whole time he shook the change in his pocket. And when we got through, Les Emerson, the agent for him uh, that was originally with Five Man Electrical Band, yeah, he told us. He said, "You're in, you guys are in," and we said, "How do you know?" Because when Joe shakes his change in his pocket, you're going to make it. You're on the way, brother. And we said, "Well, that sounds great." So we went in and we recorded uh, four single sides. And in the middle of all that, the guys that were the leaders of the band of the Keys decided that they wanted to do a different type of music. 
And I told them, I said, guys, to be out here, to be at Sound City and and a legendary place like this, and having all this available to us, and with Joe behind us and the whole thing, uh, you know, with a roster of Tom Petty and yeah. Fleetwood Mac, Fleetwood Mac, and we recorded in the same room as Fleetwood and Tom and everybody. Wow! I said, you're never going to get a chance like this again in your life, brothers. No shit. And so they say, well, we just, we decided, well, why? I said, why didn't you decide you wanted to do a different musical before we signed these contracts and so forth? <laughs> well, right. well, you know how it is. You know how it is. I said, yeah, I know how it is. You're going to wind up better than a doornail. Exactly. And, and not by me. And then they wound up being a fifties cover group. And that was the last I heard of them. So that's amazing. Got, they they JJ, broke the band know, up. Mm-hmm. I got to tell you, JJ, the the story that you relate parallels a couple of uh, stories that I know of personally. Um, You know, you heard of a guy, you maybe maybe have heard of him uh, a time or two. Um, He recorded a few songs called Christopher Robin and uh, Mm -hmm. Footloose. Mm -hmm. You know who I'm talking about, right? Kenny Loggins? Loggins. Yeah, just uh, some guy that, like, nobody ever heard of. (laughs) Mm -hmm. He was discovered in Santa Barbara, California, as an opening act for for an act that the agent actually came to see and end up discovering Kenny. That's the same thing for us. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And I know that story. Kenny Loggins was Mm -hmm. basically was just an opening act at the time. And the other story that you related that parallels actually into wrestling, Vince McMahon Sr., when he knew that he had a star in the making, would would have four quarters in his hand. And he would play with this change. He would play with these quarters. Uh He'd flip them up on top of each other. That was kind of... It, it was kind of reminiscent of the story you told about the guy with the uh, jingling the change in his pocket. Yes, Joe Dockery does. Vince McMahon mm-hmm. used to do when he had a star in the making. Well, I got well, what, three. Yeah, go, go ahead, yeah, go ahead. Sure, go well, ahead. I was just thinking, uh, you can click something in my memory. Uh, okay, so after the goofballs... Uh, uh, broke the band up to get out of the contracts to do uh, 50s music and never surface again. Uh, Jimmy Hart called me because, you know, I'd been in the Gentries prior to moving out there. Mm-hmm. He said, uh, yeah. McGuire, I'm coming to Los Angeles and I don't know where anything is. I, he was scared to death, uh, wondering how to get around. He said, uh, you, can, you can pick me up to the airport, can't, can't you? Because you know where everything is. And I said, well, sure, Jimmy, I'll, I'll, I'll chaperone you. No problem whatsoever. And so we, I set up an appointment with Joe Godfrey, the owner of uh, Sound City, and we went in and we played. Jimmy had uh, a few things that he had done himself in Memphis, uh, and then we had some stuff that he and I had done together in Memphis and played some stuff. And Joe loved it, and he looked at us and put his finger to his cheek, and he thought, I know that there's money here but and this is good stuff but i don't know how i would promote wrestling music can you believe that (laughs) amazing isn't it yeah yes amazing 
And so he said, let me give me about a week to think about how this would be marketed. And we said, uh, no problem, uh, Joe, this sounds great. And I'll get back to you in a week. And so then I called him back a week later and uh, he said, you know, I know there's something there, but I don't know how to go about promoting it and selling it exactly. Yeah. Nothing like that had been done on yet. See? Mm-hmm. And so uh, he said, but I'm still thinking, but I, you know, I don't have a clear cut view of, of how to market this. Well, too bad. He sure missed a big boat load right there. <laughs> I'm uh, telling you what, brother. And I'm telling you what. Some of the well, he discovered Fleetwood Mac and, and paid for uh, their apartment and, and bought their food for them and told them, you, all, you just stay in this apartment and you write the best material that you can do. I'll pay for everything. He, they didn't have a damn dime. He, yeah. You know, Joe, Joe made them. And you yeah. see people, fans, they go, yeah, oh, yeah, they're great. People don't know the backstories a lot behind how uh, these artists and even Elvis and some of the greatest yeah. of all time, you know, uh, are discovered. And Well, so- that's why you're here, J.J. I, I want the, uh, the behind the scenes. I want the stories that you tell so well, you know, both to us and in your book, Heaventown, uh, Hollywood, My Life in Heaventown, which is I recommend highly. It's a great book. And uh, I actually have a copy, um, and I really do. Uh, but you know what, JJ? I got three guys sitting over here very patiently. They're all squirming in their seats, though. They want to <laughs> ask you questions. Yeah, sure. So we're yeah. going to start with uh, my new co-host, Dan the Man Sebastiano. Dan, you got two questions for JJ. We're going to go around the table. All right. Um, going off, I listened to your first interview, and – as introduced to some of your material, if we can bounce back to the wrestling topic for a second, you sure. had a really interesting point where uh, you were talking about how you come up with music for characters that you've never seen or for people that you've never watched perform. I- I'm curious, has that ever, how to word this, um, have you ever written music and then watched it used live and and your thought be like, holy crap, that is not the right song for this person at all? Yeah, I mean, Never. I mean, have you have you ever or or had that moment where it's like, oh, I wish I had done something. I'm I'm curious how that that thought process goes. No, uh, seems it's just like magic. Uh, everything just fell into place just effortlessly. Uh, Vince would come to the back, you know, like I would bring my portable setup, like I talked about on the other show, mm-hmm. uh, to the coliseums and whatever. And we had a room in the back, uh, right next to the. Uh, actually, had one time I was right next to Zeus. You remember Zeus? And he came <laughs> in for a while. Yeah, Tiny Lister. Yeah. And so I had a sampler that we were, we were, you know, uh, the uh, super, super, super fly. Of course, that's me doing all that, uh, the voice yeah. and the music and the whole thing. Mm-hmm. But so I had that sample on my keyboard, and I touched that. But then when he went to the bathroom, I I went. Zeus, 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 Zeus. And he came back and I turned that up real loud and all the boys heard that and started laughing. He did too. And he came over and he said, brother, how you doing that? And I said, well, I'm not going to tell you. It's going to cost you to know. <laughs> but Connie was a nice guy. But the boys were really, uh, they were jealous of him because he was a, a movie star and not a real wrestler. But he mm-hmm. did a great yeah. job, as you remember, for those that can remember. And, oh, and sure. And, uh, but anyway... So the uh, point I'm making is Vince would come down, uh, Jimmy would run out and do a match and whatever, and then he'd run back and go, 
McGuire, have you got all that rhythm section together? Are you ready to go? So I'm going to have Vince come on down. So then Vince would come down and go, McGuire, what do you got this time? What are you and Jimmy doing this time? And Jimmy go, boss, here it is. Here's how it starts. Hit it, McGuire. And then, of course, I would hit what I would came up with. And, and Jimmy would have had lyrics. He would sing over me playing that with a drum machine and just a basic setup. And hmm. Vince, he never turned down anything we did. It was just instant, like, okay, thank you very much. And can you have that ready to go on the audio truck within, say, like 20 minutes? Uh, uh, yes, sir. <laughs> and I'm going to say, uh, no, Vince, I can't do that. I'm sorry. Uh, no. And uh, and many times the Honky Tonk Man theme, uh, uh, when they first started, before it was recorded on the Pile Driver album, uh, you know, it was uh, uh, me playing all the instruments and everything in the beginning and everything before that deal was made. And I literally put the final touch on it and ran uh, it over to um, cassette, you know, using cassette still at that time, and ran, ran as 100 miles an hour to the <laughs> audio truck and handed it to the audio kingpin, and he literally put it on and had 10 seconds to cue it up for the audience oh to hear God. for him to come out. I mean, last second stuff. Oh, that happened a few times, you know, and uh, uh, it was pretty wild, you know, but but it was a real pleasant thing. And you must understand that WWF in those years, you know, I'm talking from 86, starting in 86. That's when we started uh, doing some stuff for them. And it was great because it was a real, a real nice family setup. You could go to events at any time and say, yeah. hey, boss, listen, can I ask you a question? You know. If you went up there today and tried to go down the hall and go see Vince, uh, they'd probably call security and have you arrested. You know, <laughs> uh, but it was a great feeling. It was a cheerful feeling. Uh, the everybody listened to one another. Uh, of course, there was jealousy between talent in the back. It still goes on. You're never going to get away from that. Jane, but, Jane I have a question for you along those lines. You just. What you were saying just now prompted a question. Sure. You talked about Vince being approachable and, you know, one of the boys and part of the family. When did you see Vince change and what what was it that changed him? Would you remember that moment or can you kind of pinpoint sure. a time frame? Well, I, you know, to me, he was always the same. I think uh, if I were to go to a show next week and talk to him, he would be the same Vince that I always remember and know. But to me, the 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 Viva La Difference came to answer your question is when they went to being a publicly traded company. You see, prior see to that, that. It, it was it was. Just a bunch like us, a bunch of guys talking and having a good time and entertaining people. But as soon as it went corporate uh, per se in that way, you know, publicly traded yeah. company, and you got a board of directors of ninety thousand people. Listen, the people that ran that whole company when we when we were doing all that was basically three people. You had Vince, you had Pat Patterson, and you had Kevin Dunn, and that's what you got. Yeah, and that was that was formidable talent and entertainment and whatever. Oh, but sure. times change and people's desires and interests change. And in WWE, you know, they they want to change with the times. So a lot of people say, hey, they're still stuck and so on. So, but but um, 
Vince, there's only one person in the wrestling world who knows everything about wrestling. Yeah. And that is Vince McMahon. Period. Yeah, absolutely. JJ, you mentioned uh, Kevin Dunn. You've been around yeah. uh, quite a bit of uh, film and television in your career. How does Kevin Dunn fare as a television director? He's unbelievable. He can take an audience of 50 and make it look like 5,000. He's That's a formidable, amazing. a formidable director and formidable talent. Uh, that's all I got to say, period. Baron Von oh. Kelleher, question, two questions for JJ. All right, JJ. So, uh, remind us what years, what year was it roughly, uh, when you went out to LA and you, you, uh, were contacted by the, um, the, uh, Rolling Stones cover band, tribute band. Uh, yes, that was 1979. So the Rolling Stones were still performing and still doing their thing. Mm -hmm. That's correct. Yeah. That, and they endorsed impressive. this group. They, they liked, they liked uh, this group because really it just uh, was advertising for the real thing. Oh, absolutely. And it just helped mm -hmm. when, when yeah. the Rolling Stones can only be in one place at a time, it helped keep yes. the, the world kind of warm and, uh, yes. you know, keep it, keep it in their minds. So yeah, that's, yep. that's great. Yeah. Sure. Uh, they were all for it. Mm -hmm. yeah. I should point out that we have a, a J.J. McGuire lookalike that performs down the uh, coffee shop down the street, but he sounds like <laughs> Tennessee Ernie Ford. <laughs> oh, well, well, he must be quite a pee picker then. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. okay, Mikey, one more question. Go ahead, baby. Yeah, I'm, I'm getting my second question in here. So, um, mm -hmm. so the keys... I, yeah. I was looking on my phone to see if, if uh, I could find any of the songs that the Keys recorded, but I'm guessing none of it uh, saw the light of day? Well, it did, and it didn't at the same time. Uh, we changed the name from the Keys when we signed with uh, Sound City wow. and Joe Gottfried to The Rage, R-A-G-E. Okay. Uh, we, we had a song called NYC, which, you know, talks about New York and it was all high-powered. Uh, we kind of sounded like a blend between the Who and the Beatles and the Knack and that all that. If you can imagine kind of all that grouped up into one newer type of sound, that was can't the, go wrong with sound. the Beatles, right? No, yeah, we had we had Beatle uh, type sound and a lot of these these guys uh, were good writers, and the material was really excellent. And uh, you know, I, I will give them credit where credits due. But they were just uh, jabronis as far as understanding <laughs> about the, about the chances uh, in the business. When you get chances at that level, you better run the whole route and see where you get, because yeah. you're not likely you're going to get another chance like that. JJ, have you ever written? Well, I know you've written songs for uh, a lot of people. Have you ever mm -hmm. written a song for a person? that they were thrilled with that you were less than happy about? No, not really. Uh, everybody really? always liked everything that I ever came up with or, or that Jimmy and I came up with. Uh, nobody, it's like when we did the uh, audition thing for Thunder in Paradise, uh, they wound up remodeling the whole show around us. Uh, yeah, you know, uh, uh, I think I told that story on the other show, how it all yeah, worked out. Yeah, sure did. Mm -hmm. And, uh, 
we everybody just always accepted us and and myself and Jimmy both either separately or together and however they with open arms we never there was never any real problems to be honest with you that's remarkable because I know a lot of singer songwriters having been in the music business I spent my life in two businesses wrestling and music yeah and I've been fortunate to know uh, quite a few of the boys in in wrestling and a lot of successful singer-songwriters, and I've not met any singer-songwriter or composer that was happy with everything they've done. So you are really unique, and as I said at the, the top of the show, you know, you're kind of an enigma in, in the business that, you know, everything that you've done, you hit it out of the ballpark. You really have. You've been really, really fortunate. Yes, sir, and I appreciate you really saying that, but my heart, like I said, we didn't put this music together, and I didn't put the music together to really to beef up my ego. I, I tried to create something that would beef up the audience's ego, because it's all about them anyway. Without them, you got no wrestling, you got no music, you got no nothing. Yeah. I, I, I really, really, really wanted to create something that would entertain the people that's the bottom line and jimmy hart and i are two guys that are we're all about entertainment speaking of entertainment we've got two questions from our resident filmmaker mike messier go ahead hi, mike. hi jj it's good to speak with you again buddy thank you and you too. and uh thanks and I, I remember from the last time i said to the guys after you were off the call that J.J. McGuire is the perfect type of collaborator because he does all the work. <laughs> well, well, that's nice of you to say that, but uh, I did a lot of the heavy lifting, but, but yeah. Jimmy Hart is, is a genius, and he hears everything perfect. And like I said, when I wrote the Rockers theme, you know, I played it, and it was it was like dun 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 He said, hold it, McGuire, wait a minute. You've seen how fast they run to the ring, about 100 miles an hour. He says it needs to be faster. So I went, okay, dun 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 dun. You know, just stuff like but stuff like that makes something. Yeah, it's a good team. You know, those those type of advice, that type of advice and and suggestions is is a big part of our success, Jimmy and my success together, because we he he gave me free reign. What do you got, McGuire? What what do we got for so and so? Right. Okay, here's what I got. Oh, I like it. He said, "Here, let me here. Give me, let me take this pencil." And then he write down, and you know, he do sexy boy or whatever. I came in and had all the chords and everything, and then he went, "He's so cool. He's so sexy." Mom, mom, mom. And then write that down. And we just had a we we still have it a magical, mystical mystery ability that's almost a psychic talent. Well, speaking of which, let's talk about that talent. You've had quite a few wrestlers record their own music. Mm -hmm. um, Shawn Michaels comes to mind, of course, from Sherry Martell. But mm -hmm. Million Dollar what's Man. It like with a guy who's really not a professional singer, um, mm -hmm. stepping into a studio and, and cutting a, a track for his own music? Is it difficult? Do they give you input? Uh, do you take suggestions or you say, this is the song, here's how it's sung, do it? 
That's basically what it, the first thing we did like that was with Jerry Lawler in mm-hmm. Mid South. We did a record for him. He he had this grand idea about doing a record and selling it at the matches. Really, I, mean, this, I, I don't know about that <laughs> yeah. one. I must was have that slept called that. King of the Ring? Was that called King of the Ring, JJ? Uh, uh, no, that was it. Was the song that we did? We covered. It was the disco era. This was in the latter seventies. So, oh, uh, it was a took, disco song, JJ. Yes, yeah, so I took "Breaking Up" is hard oh to God. do by Neil Sedaka <laughs> and made it disco. Oh, wow. that's funny. Yeah, and and it 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 was went over fabulous. Nobody had done that yet. Uh, WWF or WWF, it, they didn't have any records. Nobody did. Uh, this, this was a pioneering thing. This is another important thing about Mid South wrestling that's so important to wrestling history and so forth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very important. And and even though I'm the music guy, I can tell you that. You just look at all that talent that came out of Mid-South and ICW. Yeah. That's your greatest icons that's ever put on a pair of tights, brother. And uh, I hope they save, uh, and uh, they got the money to save the uh, Memphis uh, the auditorium down there because that thing yeah. is where, that's the birth of modern wrestling, brother. That's all I can tell you. And Mikey Messier, I I stepped on your question, so go ahead and ask another question. Well, today. I wanted to. Uh, now I got a uh, JJ. Just you mentioned. I think when you said Mid South, a lot of us know that as Mid Southern, which is Austin Idol, Jerry the King Lawler, Jimmy Hart. Were you there yeah. for the Jerry Lawler uh, Andy Kaufman 1981 feud? Were you around for that, JJ? Yes, yes, I was, and I knew things about that. There was only. Three people in the world that really knew what what the deal was on all that, and I was the third person. Four people, JJ. Mm-hmm. I was there from the get go. Yeah. yeah. What did you What did you guys I, think of uh, of Andy Kaufman? Fabulous. Uh, he brought a whole another dimension to wrestling that was totally unexpected and unprepared for. Yeah. And when he when he would challenge you, I'll wrestle any woman. That, <laughs> that wants to, that, that wants to be brave enough and all that, and you know yeah. he went to he went to Vince to, and WWF to start with, and they yeah. didn't want it. Mm-hmm. They didn't want it. I know. They thought, no, this, this, as if this is too much carnival. But wait a minute, look at how much carnival WWF was in those. Well, years. you know what, JJ, I got to tell you, uh, and in mm-hmm. the interest of full disclosure, I've told this story publicly. Uh, but never on my podcast. I actually told it on another show. Mm-hmm. I knew Andy Kaufman. I knew him very mm-hmm. well. Oh, really? And I took I took Andy to a wrestling match at the Philadelphia Spectrum, mm-hmm. and he was just starting to you know to take off, and people knew who he was. Mm-hmm. And I attended. <laughs> this is the truth. I attended mm-hmm. a show with Andy Kaufman, dressed as an old woman, and he was dressed as an old man. <laughs> and we went as a couple. Oh man, that's, that's true. Awesome. That's a true story. That is awesome. When are you going to take off costume, Angela? I, I and I, I knew about <laughs> Jerry Lawler angle mm-hmm. from the get-go. I was one of the uh, the people that knew, along mm-hmm. with JJ McGuire, Jerry Lawler, Andy Kaufman, and one other person. JJ, let's mm-hmm. not leave out our friend Bill Apter. Uh, yeah. Okay. Correct. If if I may, then, uh, since you were uh, both there and you mentioned 
the the territory at the time. Um, what do you guys think of how that was portrayed? That era, those people in the Man on the Moon film. Do you think they kind of they was, accurately, like JJ said, and I will echo JJ's uh, sentiments. It was wrestling gold. That's yes. what pro wrestling was. It was. Tell me if I'm wrong, JJ. It was sport. It was spectacle. It was showbiz. It was. It was everything that you wanted it to be. That's right, and more. The fan, a fan never left any of those shows going. What a jip! I, I that was a jip. I want my money back. I never heard anybody ever want their money back. Ever. Um, I'm waiting for one of you guys to turn into Tony Clifton at any moment now. Absolutely. Yes. I, I actually that. played Tony Clifton once. I had the feeling you did. I did. <laughs> I did. A gut, I, gut I, feeling I that it. was coming. I, you can't make this shit up. I, I if can, you don't believe me, ask Bob Zamuda. I can, uh, that Bob Zamuda was, mm-hmm. was Andy's uh, close confidant. That's a I fascinating well. story. I knew Bob. Is that how you, uh, Angelo, and JJ met? Was was back then? Did you guys know each other cross paths in that era? No, no. believe it or no. not, I actually JJ and I have never met in person. Mm. No, never. But JJ and I have a shit ton of mutual friends. A lot. Oh yeah, definitely. I, I wanted to ask JJ for some reason. There's a song that's on the tip of my mind tonight as we talk to JJ McGuire, and it's. Coco beware the bird man, because when Angela was asking about the wrestlers singing Coco, who also came from Memphis wrestling, Coco mm-hmm. beware was probably the best natural singer of the bunch. As far as the wrestlers would, sure would that was. be about right? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he did a great job on pile driver. Now we didn't write pile driver for him though. That was written by someone else. Uh, I can't remember who wrote that exactly. And, have to look it up. But what about uh, the Birdman song? The the Birdman. Bird, 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 yeah, bird. I, yeah. I wrote it and played it all and Jimmy wrote the lyrics. And I yeah. produced it and recorded it all and did the whole thing with him. It, and he did the lyrics. A, it's a very upbeat song that really matched Coco's character because mm-hmm. you knew that Coco nine times out of ten wasn't going to beat Nikolai Volkov or Butch Reed, but right. he'd put up mm-hmm. a good fight and, and he'd go in there mm-hmm. and it was very upbeat with Frankie. Mm-hmm. But he was entertaining doing it. That's the whole point. There you go. Thank you, Angelo. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, That's favorite. the whole point. It hey. didn't mm-hmm. matter if you won or lost because in wrestling, wins and losses, I don't care what Cody Rhodes says. I'm sorry, Cody. I love you, but <laughs> but mm-hmm. wins and losses don't matter, and titles don't matter. They're props. In wrestling, mm-hmm. it's all about the spectacle, the sport, and the entertainment. It's, you know... It's uh, to to steal a line from from Jr. Uh, you know Jim Cornette likes to uh-huh. stake and Vince Russo likes to sizzle. Well, uh-huh. wrestling is both. It's uh, it's stake and sizzle. Uh-huh. That's, That's right. what real wrestling is. It's you know it's sport and spectacle. It's that's it always was, and I hope one day I really thank God. Listen to me. I hope one day. That it returns to that, because what I'm well, seeing now, and and actually, JJ, I'm going to ask you about this. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts, my friend, on this whole uh, what Mike Messier calls the empty arena era? It's mind-boggling. I, I would never thought that I would live to see a day where you would have to do something in that fashion. You know, that way. It's. Uh, 
I think it's I think it's hurting the business. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. I think it's absolutely destroying the business. It really is. I would mm-hmm. much rather, JJ, that they put reruns on of WrestleMania or mm-hmm. just about anything else. So yes, let sir. me ask you from from a fan standpoint, because I know you watch the product and mm-hmm. I know you've been a wrestling fan, you know, your whole life. Yes. What do you enjoy in a match? What do you what is your perfect match? If you had the book, the perfect JJ McGuire match, who do you want to see? Wow, that's a tough question, brother. One of the best matches I ever saw in my whole life. I mean, let's face it, there's been quite a few of them. Uh, we could go on all night on that. But one of the greatest matches that I've ever witnessed uh, eight feet away uh, between the rail and the ring in the corner was when I sang the national anthem at that legend show a little bit over a decade ago down in Memphis. And it was the match between Hulk Hogan and Big Show. This hasn't been seen uh, other than if you were there. Uh, this was the, one of the grandest matches ever. And, the, and Hulk and Big Show worked in a fashion that was more like the Japanese uh, programs where it's, uh, you know, less circus and more actual realism, you know? Yeah. And uh, I, I, it's hard for me to describe this match, but they I've never seen so many devastating chops thrown continually in my life in any match ever in history, yeah. period. It so, was a fabulous match, but VH1 filmed it all for um, part of Hogan's uh, show or whatever, but they only used a little tiny clip, but they wanted to put it on as a whole feature thing. But they claim that the this was before a lot of, uh, you know, the current digital stuff where you can like burst uh, shots and, uh, you know, uh, as your filmmaker friend there knows that you can do things to help scenes that were too dark and whatever. But they claim that it was it was the whole thing wasn't lit bright enough for them to show the whole thing. But somebody needs to go to VH1 and procure uh, that entire show because. The critics that were there said that it was the the only show in wrestling history that the timing was absolutely perfect from beginning to end. Wow. Wow. And, I, you know, I would like for you to be able to see it. I'm trying to describe something that I, that you can't visualize because you, you haven't seen it. And mo- and majority of people in, in the world haven't. But that's You know, JJ, I, I'm, I'm surprised, I have to tell you. I'm really surprised that uh, that Vince McMahon uh, and or WWE, with all their, you know, stroke and money, uh, haven't found a way to procure that that footage. I know I, that it's a baffler. It's, uh, it's just really mind boggling to me. It, it was really a fabulous program, and uh, that's all I can tell you. And of course, handsome Jimmy Valiant wrestled and. Uh, you know, all the icons that were there and uh, uh, Superstar Dundee and on and on and on. But that I match. I love Bill Dundee. Oh, I yeah. Love. He's a great guy. Great guy. Yeah, he's, he's funny as shit, too. <laughs> mm-hmm. He is a yeah, yeah. funny guy. Dan, the man, you got questions for JJ. Yeah, I was actually going to chime in. A uh, A friend of mine was at that show and 
recorded well you know before the days of of everybody having a camera in their pocket recorded some mm-hmm. of it um that matt you're absolutely right how the quality of the match between hogan and big show uh it's mm-hmm. funny how everything works out for a reason because the original plan was for the legends main event to be hulk hogan and jerry lawler that's correct and, and, I, and- if I remember the WWE blocked Jerry Lawler because of a contract issue. Well, there, yes and no. Uh, Jerry's son, I was in the back and Jerry got on the payphone and said, dad, you blew it. You should have been here. He was fussing at Jerry mm-hmm. about it. He said, no matter what, you should have been here because this is, this is the show of all shows and you weren't here. And you're the king of Memphis, and it's a mistake, Dad, yeah. that you didn't come. It was his hometown. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he's the king down there. He only yeah. had two kings, Presley and him. Exactly. And, uh, but but his son was really upset with him, and I heard the whole conversation. I was just standing not more than eight feet away and listening to the whole thing. And he was we'll really talk upset about that, Elvis that in a minute, come. too. Is that sure. Scotty Tuhati? Isn't that his son? No, Brian Christopher. Yeah, the uh, other one. Yeah, okay. Ron Christopher was on the show. That's correct. Was that 2002? Was that the era of that? That sounds right. I'm not real sure. It's been so long. I haven't really looked. At, I can't remember the exact date on it. That sounds I, right. Mike, I think it was. Uh, I think it was 0102. Right yeah, around. Jerry Lawler had like right. that six month right sabbatical. Right. Jerry Lawler was gone from WWE for about six months around WrestleMania 17. Yeah, yeah they had. If I remember correctly, they had fired his fiance wife, and he quit in protest. Yeah. Stacy the cat. You guys, yeah. you guys know what you're talking about, and know the history of wrestling well. Now you tell me, Jerry Lawler standing there, looking at Hulk Hogan. The only thing that looked almost as simple-minded was the Rock and Hulk Hogan. He he, did, Hulk just makes these people look like midgets. <laughs> yeah. Lawler Lawler would have looked like a child up there next to Hulk. And the real thing is, is he feared that. He knew that Hogan would overshadow him in his own domain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Was it, it, JJ, was it really like that ego thing? You know, I, I have met Jerry a few times. I actually ring announced a couple of his matches here mm-hmm. in New Jersey. He's mm-hmm. always been a great guy with me, but I have heard, uh, and you probably would know better than I, but I have heard that he could be difficult to do business with. Well, he was like, he, he, he ran the programs the way it was his show period. Yeah, and enough. you did what, what the King had laid out. That's what you went with. And you didn't variety from there or argue. You just did. It's like being in the military. This is your mission. Get going. Yeah. But he was always, Jerry was nice to me. Like I told on the other uh, show and everything, he's always polite to me and everything, but I, but I wasn't a wrestler and I wasn't wrestling for him and whatever. But he's uh, in just regular day-to-day life. You wouldn't meet a nicer person than Jerry Law. You know, and I, and I think that may be the common bond, JJ. You and I are, are not wrestlers, and uh, I think he does mm-hmm. treat, you know, non-wrestlers different than, you know, the, yes. the quote, the boys. Dan, yes, you got a question. Go ahead. Yeah, I, would, I was kind of hoping we could circle back, uh, talking about everything as far as kind of falling into place. Uh, one of my 
favorite music stories, you'd mentioned the Beatles earlier, was when they were filming what was at the time Eight Arms to Hold You. At the last second, they changed the name of the movie to Hard Day's Night and basically mm-hmm. called John Lennon on a Saturday and said, Monday morning, we need a song called Hard Day's Night. And on demand, right to hit. You were talking about uh, how you threw that the honky, you know, the, the the honky tonk man, and how you were able to throw music together. Do you have any any thoughts or stories with that, where you just something just clicked, everything perfect, bam, bam, and and you look at the product and like it just it, everything just flowed, you know, that, that hit on demand pretty much. Uh, I'd say a demolition thing. Demolition, really? yeah, yep, uh, just. Uh, they heard it. They came down there and said, yeah, "Who's that for?" And I said, "That's for you. We love it." <laughs> and really, it's one of my favorite things that I came up with. I think, as simple as it is, and everything, it it fit. Uh, Bill told me that uh, I appeared at uh, the show um, Heroes and Legends uh, that he was at in Fort Wayne last year, mm. and he just kept going on and on and on about it. He said, "McGuire." We would never have been what we became if we didn't have had that theme. I said, listen, man, if y'all came out with kazoos playing, you would still <laughs> exactly. be one of the greatest of all time. The you music know, didn't make, make you. He said, no, the music did uh, make us. The music well, added and what that, we JJ, didn't have. JJ, I am actually going to go there. Have you... I want to ask just in, in kind of a uh, in a two-part way. Have you written music that you knew internally would get someone over? Or have you written music that you knew someone needed in order to get over? I'm the Mountie, and then I'm not the Mountie. Okay. Now, can you, if he got up there and sang an Elvis song, would that have worked as, as well? No. No. It was a special custom song just for his. Goofy character, you know, yeah. it, uh, uh, it, I think, uh, that's an answer to your question. Is it hard to write music for a comedy act? Let's be honest about it. You know, uh, Pierre Rougeau, uh, of course the Mountie, um, mm-hmm. was a bit of a comedy act, you know, he, he uh, was yeah. self-deprecating and it, is it hard to write for that kind of uh, persona? Well, well, I'm going to tip my hat to Jimmy on this one because the words uh, really made that whole comedic uh, uh, entrance entree. I mean, those words are formidable uh, and fit just what you're saying, you know, a comedic type of edge, you know. Without yeah. those words, uh, you know, uh, we don't like heavy metal. We don't like rock and roll. All we like to listen to is Barry Manilow. I mean, come on. <laughs> That's the mind of Jimmy Hart. You know, and yeah. uh, uh, that made it to me, uh, his his awesome lyrical ability and, and ability to hear what sounds right and so on. And, uh, Jimmy Hart's one of the smartest people that's ever been in the wrestling business and underrated in that genre. And Jimmy had more more great things that you saw through those years were Jimmy Hart's concepts, perhaps, than even Vince McMahon. Mm. Mike Kelleher has a question. Well, so, um, you know, you talked about WWF not having any records at the time. Um, mm-hmm. But 
I actually just recently picked up the the WWF record, um, and it had uh, Rowdy Roddy Piper, Brutus Beefcake. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I'm trying to remember everybody who's on it, but it's like a who's who of of WWF superstars back in the day, except Hulk Hogan. No Hulk Hogan on it. The wrestling um, album. Yeah, the wrestling album. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so um, that was the first one. The first one we didn't we didn't have any music on the first one. Uh, they had land of a Thou- land of a thousand dances and uh, a lot yeah. of cover stuff on there. You know? Yeah. And then so, they realized, uh, wait a minute, we you know we do a lot better to have our own handcrafted things that exactly. we can that they can sell and make money on and blah blah blah. You know. Good. That's Mike. What I was going with that was how did you transition from the first record into the other ones that came out later, but. Good question. Yeah, that's uh, Vince realized that that uh, in WWE realize, or WWF realized that we're going to do better to have our own original thing uh, rather than and see they ran into a licensing problem with Eye of the Tiger with Hulk Hogan because that was Survivor and yeah. they wanted uh, the company wanted big money every time it's played and so Vince just got to thinking, wait a minute, we Jimmy Hart and his partner in McGuire, they, they, they know how to do this kind of stuff too. And of course they had, uh, Jim Johnson was doing stuff for them when they were just a local, uh, low budget, uh, you know, uh, playing, uh, high school arenas and, uh, you know, not as good as a, yeah. as a lot of the independent wrestling companies we go and see today, you know? Yeah. And, uh, so that's kind of how that all went from there. But, uh, the, uh, it, it, we just came in, we were lucky that we were able to come in at a time that we did. And when all those, uh, future greatest of all time icons, like Hulk and everybody coming in and they were coming in so fast that, I mean, uh, you know, I was, uh, burning up my equipment quickly because there's so many talents coming in and needing so many things so fast that, yeah. you know, and, and, and Johnson, he took a job doing music for deep space nine the tv show yeah jane j did did, did vince mcmahon or wwe uh at any time ever uh uh petition for membership in the bmi or ascap well uh the publisher which was uh titan sports you know the publisher can be with every uh, organization they can be with bmi ascap and csac but a writer has to choose one of the three. You can't be a writer with all three. You got to be with one or of the other. And so, and who uh, were you and Jimmy with? I made the the deal on everything uh, I, for it all. Uh, I got us with CSAC because CSAC was an independently owned company, and they actually gave advances to where that BMI and ASCAP. Uh, they got, when they would mention the word advance, it really wasn't the truth. What it is, is they, they told you, they, they told me, they said, well, we'll take you over to the bank and we'll co-sign any kind of loan for you. Well, what the hell, what kind of deal is that? Uh, uh, you know, let me call a mafia buddy and make a deal. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. I mean, the, the interest you'd have back is ridiculous. (laughs) Unbelievable. And so I said, no, thank you. So I called CSAC and like I told on the other show, for those that didn't hear it, I'll tell it again real quick. The Pile Driver album came out. We had our first three songs on there, Demolition, uh, Honky Tonk Man, and Jimmy did a song we wrote called Crank It Up. Yeah. And so uh, I called uh, ASCAP and BMI, same old thing. 
and every, and a lot of my friends that uh, had had it signed to be in cap, they were crying about their royalties being late and being cheated out of money. You know, I'm not saying that they're cheaters and liars and so on, but you know, figures lie and liars figure. So there you go. <laughs> and uh, so I talked to a call CSAC, and they uh, CSAC was actually the first performing rights society. Uh, it goes all the way back to Woody Guthrie. Yeah. And uh, so. I said, this is J.J. McGuire. I said, uh, myself and my partner, Jimmy Hart, we're doing a lot of music for WWF right now, and uh, which is a pretty big outfit. And uh, one moment, please. And the phone picks up and goes, uh, hello, this is Tom Casey, uh, vice president of CSAC. Uh, uh, J.J., how are you? And I went, uh, Tom, I'm okay. He said, you won't believe this, but I'm sitting here holding the Piledriver album. I picked it up on my lunch break. Ah. And I just come back to the office and I've just been listening to it. And, and the receptionist dialed up and said that you were on the phone and I'm holding the album in my hand as we speak. That's wild. That's the truth too. God's truth. And he said, we can make any kind of deal within or without of reason. Can you be down here next Tuesday? Well, I said, I can be down there tomorrow if you want me to. Be there in five so, minutes. Yeah. Yeah. So I went down on Tuesday and made the and made our deal for us. It, uh, the first part of the leg of the deal, and of course we were burning it up. We were on all the outlets, on major networks, uh, in all the coliseums and auditoriums around the world, and yeah, I mean, you know, there wasn't any problem at all. So I made the deal. I'm the guy that put the whole deal together, and then I had to deal with WWF. They were they were dumb on the record business because they weren't dumb on the wrestling business, but they didn't know shit from Shinola uh, about really the record business. Yeah. So, uh, I had enlightened them to a lot of aspects of that. And I guess, uh, what, what bit of music that Johnson had done for him, he had done it all through his auspices and everything. Truth be told, Jim Johnson uh, actually probably made uh, more money through the things that he wrote than Vince and them ever made. And then they, by the time they finally figured that out, you know, uh, it was a whole nother show. And then that's, yeah. we had 90, we had 96% of all WWF music from late eighties through up through uh, 2000. Amazing. So, but, but I was the guy that put the deal together and everything. And Tom Casey was a wrestling fan and knew the business. And he was a sports genius. And he could tell you, uh, how far of a hit that uh, uh, any baseball player made from the beginning of baseball in history. He was just a genius on stats and a great guy and loved wrestling. And that's how it started. And we went from there. And I wound up making millions of dollars for WWE, uh, WWF rather, WWE, and for Jimmy and myself and, and, and CSAC because CSAC was able to sell performance licenses yeah. that would, nice. around the world. And that was gigantic revenue, gigantic revenue. Huge. Mm-hmm. JJ, yeah. we got a question from Mike Messier. Then we're going to go to Dan. Uh, you know, you know, funny, funny, JJ, I forgot to mention the last show. I was actually in uh, a rock and roll wrestling band for a short period of time. We were called the figure four. And we had we had a couple of good songs. I was the singer. We had a title shot. We had a song called Battle Royal. But my bandmates at the end of our very first show wanted to catch me off guard 
they started playing the riff to the demolition theme song just to challenge me. And lo and behold, I was able to rattle off a good portion of the lyrics spontaneously mm-hmm. to honor demolition in a, in a spontaneous cover of your music. Now we didn't, we didn't have uh, ASCAP or CSPAC there in, in attendance to get your commission. I'm sorry, but no we'll problem. look into that. Um, no problem whatsoever. I'm, I'm glad. I appreciate thank you for doing that. Yeah. Well, we just, it was just the, the, when, when it's, it's not really hyperbole to say that these songs, uh, the Birdman, Coco Beware, Crank It Up, that the Young Stallions used mm-hmm. to irritate Jimmy Hart. I remember that quite well, that they brought the mm-hmm. music in for the Young Stallions to annoy Jimmy Hart uh, for yes. a babyface tag team of Paul Roma and Jimmy Powers. But it really is right. the soundtrack of our lives and our childhood. And and um, But I wanted to ask you a question, kind of a existential question. You've dealt with Hollywood. You've dealt with actors. You've dealt with wrestling people. Can you speak on um, kind of where that line between ego and talent can get blurred or overlap? Because you're a very humble guy. You, you tell it as it happened. You don't have any braggadocio. But having been around actors and wrestlers myself, sometimes there is some ego and vulnerability with these type of uh, high-end people. Do you, do you have any thoughts on who's got the worst type of egos or who's more vulnerable? or right. Yeah. What do you think? Well, that, that's a great question. I'll have to tell you, uh, it's all in the person. I always go back to Bob Hope of all things. Of course, a lot of young people go, Bob Hope, or the kids go, who's Bob Hope? But we know who Bob Hope was. Sure. And, and I worked directly with Bob Hope some, and Bob Hope was the type of person that he's like your uncle that from Poughkeepsie or, or wherever. Uh, you know, he was just a regular guy that was, he never changed his demeanor or his ego, though he was the biggest comedian, one of the biggest comedians that's ever lived in talents that's ever been in show business, film and everything. And he was, I found that the greatest stars were the most humble people. Mm-hmm. That's my, my experience of working with Alice Cooper and, he and uh, on and on and on and on. These these greatest stars were really extremely normal, humble people, and that's why they lasted so long and and kept their fame until they passed away or whatever. They were humble. They were normal, acting humble people. They. That's all I can tell you. Uh, Bob Hope was just like uh, well when he came to Glen Glen Sound and. I uh, met him at the door and said, uh, uh, Mr. Hope, uh, welcome to Glen Glen. Uh, I'm in charge of uh, taking care of anything that you need. If you uh, w- uh, want phone calls you want down there on the soundstage or what food you want brought down or do you not want any call, you you know, however you want it, we'll fix it. And I said, uh, he said, first of all, John, uh, I'm not Mr. Hope. Uh, Mr. Hope was my father and he's dead. I said, well, could I call you Uncle Bob? <laughs> he laughed at that, and I thought, oh, my God, I made one of the funniest guys that's ever lived laugh. And I thought, what, what, what another example of my life in heaven town. That really means, that doesn't really mean Hollywood per se. That does mean part of Hollywood. But what it really means is, is that all these events that have happened in my lifetime have been just like I, I've been living in heaven. Yeah. It's all been positive and happy and 
uh, you know, I've had my share of blows and, and, and things, uh, but not related with the music or the show business, you know, just uh, right. had, had some health issues at one time and different things. Uh, but, um, the, I found that, uh, the greatest stars, most of the greatest stars were very humble people. JJ, you know, Mikey, uh, so appropriately says that you are a, a humble guy and, uh, I appreciate and, that. I, I I do. I thank you. I don't know how to perceive that. I, 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 you know, when people say and people say, if I had a dollar for every time somebody's told me that your music is the fabric of my life, if I had a dollar for every time I've been told that, uh, I, I would have maybe a quarter of as much money as Vince McMahon. And well, it just, you it, are. It, really, it, it touches me because it's hard to believe. <laughs> yeah. It really is, but you know what? You've been incredibly successful. How do you remain humble? What What do you do to stay grounded? Well, I always, when I had time off and whatever, I always returned home uh, to my parents and my family. And my parents, I wasn't born until they were 42 years old. And my dad was a World War II veteran. Wow. And I always kept a close tie to my, my, my family. And I really owe... What sense? What bit of sensibility that I might have to that, to remaining close? Where, you know, like in 350 days, you can see how that the rigors of road and rigors of all that uh, hurt people's families and destructed lives yeah. and got people addicted and murders and I mean up and down everything you can imagine. And, but I always kind of stayed normal, I guess to say, even though I'd worked with all these icons and done this stuff, uh, my heart was always at home and I never let go of uh, the family element, you know, and I think that's yeah. what really helped me. And then I was raised by older people. You know, my parents are old enough to be my uncles and aunts or whatever, mm. or maybe my yeah. grandparents. Uh, but I was fortunate to be, molded by older people that were good, honest, uh, solid type people that really, uh, gave me a good foundation. That's all I can tell you. And it, and it doesn't hurt that you're from Kentucky, which is, you know, that'll keep you humble and grounded. You know, uh, you know, we should tell yeah. people that you were not born with a, a gold spoon in your mouth. Uh, things were tough no, I wasn't. I sure when you wasn't. were, when you were younger and it was, uh, the, the fact that you are uh, a musical prodigy was is nothing short of a gift from heaven uh, that you are who you are and you uh, became what you became. Our friend Dan has a question. Then we're going to go to Baron Von Kelleher. Go ahead, Danny. Thanks. I, I, I think it's awesome I, to p continue Mike's sentiment that how really just grounded and real you seem i've had the pleasure of speaking with a lot of musicians in my life and you definitely stand out as somebody who understands and appreciates life and mike nailed it when he said that you know your your music was the fabric of our childhood i mean everybody knew those songs i'm curious you you mentioned when we first started that you're still a big fan of the product have you ever watched say a, a raw or, or WCW, AEW, any of that after you, you kind of got out of it and said, man, I wish I had the chance. Is there anybody you re you just absolutely would want the chance to write an entrance theme for? Good question. Oh, sure. 
I've got a I've got an alternative theme for uh quite a few people here. I've got a uh a theme for Cody Rhodes that would probably escalate him even bigger than he is today. And I'm I'm really? going to go to one of the shows when it comes eventually. And because the last time that I saw Cody, he was a child. Mm. And Dusty brought him to uh one of the shows and all that, but I've got a thing for him that is to die for. Now, I know the people, the fans like Kingdom and everything, but the reason that they're going to like whatever he comes out to because he's who he is, and he gives the people the spectacle and the entertainment value we've talked about. But yeah. I have a theme here for him that uh, it starts out, the first verse says that he's much more than just a common man. That's the first line. It's a jazzy, uh, uh, Angelo would love it. It's a jazzy type simple uh, four instrument thing that's very simple and whatever. And I wouldn't mind doing a theme for Tessa Blanchard. Really? And I, really? Talked, I, I talked to Tessa uh, at that uh, when I appeared at uh, the, um, in, uh, uh, for, uh, rather in New York at the big event uh, back in November. And uh, I've got a, a something that would be great for her, too. But, of course, now AEW, they hired uh, Mikey Ruckus. And Mikey Ruckus does uh, excellent work. But Mikey Ruckus is more of a – he's not really, uh, uh, to me, uh, I'm not knocking him, but he's he's a specialty sound effect workout type yeah. music creator. He He doesn't come from a background of hit records and – Stuff like Jimmy Hart and I have, you see. Yeah, mm. it's and more that, synthetic, uh, JJ. Uh, a lot of yeah, synthesizer, yeah. fabricated. Yeah. Uh, we maybe I, I hate to use that word, but I, for lack of uh, for lack of a better term, it's more fabricated. Yeah, that that, that might be okay. But now, I like uh, Mikey does the best work in the business for like those workout things and. Oh sure, football and and sports stuff of that that kind of nature. But listen, as we know, wrestling is a is a specialized form of entertainment. It's not like yeah. football. It's not like cheerleading, cheer uh, music. It's it's uh, it, it does have elements of that. But the thing I think that really helped us so much is we created all sorts of different genres of real music, and and plus. You know, I had uh, classical music training and uh, all that, and I wasn't just a a garage uh, musician that kind of picked up. Uh, I picked up stuff that way starting out, like we all did. But sure. uh, I was formally trained, so I had a leg up on a lot of stuff, and I could play a lot of instruments because of that formal training I had in classical music as a child. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, JJ, I'll tell you what, my friend. Uh, you know, this is your second time on the show. It will most certainly not be your last. But tonight, I have to let you go. That was a fast one hour. Yes. Um, I will uh, I will be talking to you tomorrow about our little side project. Oh, sure. Okay. And um, But uh, for now, I'm going to have to say goodnight to you. And uh, well, there's so much to cover with J.J. McGuire. I mean, you're talking about... Mm-hmm. You know, a, a fullness of life. You know, we uh, we had JJ, we had uh, Karen McDaniel here last night. You know, uh, the late Wahoo McDaniel's wife, mm-hmm. and uh, 
talking about, you know, squeezing a lifetime, you know, three or four lifetimes worth of living in the, you know, into 58 or 63 years or whatever it was that Wahoo lived. But, yeah. uh, you know, at your young age, I'll tell you what, brother, you, you've got about five lifetimes inside you. Well, I appreciate you saying that, Angelo. And, and I think you do too. Uh, uh, I thought that I'd oh, worked boy. and met a lot of uh, A-list people, but I think you may have beat me. Uh, you, you've you worked and been with many, many great legends yourself, and you understand the heart fortunate. of legends. Just That's something we both have in common is that, that we understand the heart of the legends. Absolutely. Absolutely. JJ, you are my friend. I love you, brother. I am going to let love you go, you and uh, I'll talk to you tomorrow. Sounds great. And you guys have a good evening. And thank you so much for all the comments and accolades. And I'd just like to say God gave me talent. So I took it to the greatest show on earth. I traveled the world with the greatest of all time. Unbelievably entertained people of color in all walks of life. Who knew that wrestling is such a powerful force? I think we all did. Well said. Amen. Yes, sir. Testify, brother. Yes, sir. Thanks, JJ. Take care, JJ. Thank you. Yes, sir. Y'all have a good evening. Thank you very much. You too. Thanks, JJ. Mm -hmm. Take care. Yes, sir. Bye-bye. Good night now. Bye-bye. Wow. Great, great interview. I'll tell you what. Whenever JJ McGuire is with us, he, you know, he never ceases to amaze me. He, he pulls out these stories from his life, and, the, and, and he's barely scratched the surface Right. And we've had him here twice. Well, Angelo, tonight we learned about your uh, Tony Clifton moments, and uh, I want to hear more about that at some point. That's exactly <laughs> where I want to go. Right. Andy Kaufman is what I want to know. Where is he? Andy was a great guy. He, he still is. He's alive, and you know He's where he is. goofing on Elvis. I, yeah, he and Elvis are hanging out with Amelia Earhart. Uh, Andy Kaufman was really and an Jim inspiration. Morrison. Well, Andy and Jim Morrison are inspirations for me. Um, Andy Kaufman, what he did with intergender wrestling. He was intergender wrestling before intergender wrestling with uh, Tessa Blanchard 30 or 40 years later. Oh, so. sure. Mm-hmm. But well, of course- Andy was a, was a trendsetter in so many ways. You know, it's funny. When people talk about, and I'll just relate some personal stuff. When people talk about, you know, comedic geniuses, they, they often mention Andy. Andy never considered himself a comedian, he, and he wasn't. He never told jokes. He never told stories. Andy simply parodied what he saw around him. What you saw Andy do with, you know, uh, lip syncing to Mighty Mouse and doing Elvis, he did that in his his parents' house in his bedroom. That's what he did. He was a lonely kid and used to entertain himself. He used to, his audience was his wall. And that's how he used to entertain himself. And he was a big Elvis fan and he loved wrestling. And, uh, and he used to, uh, you know, uh, as I said, entertain himself by putting, you know, the Mighty Mouse record on and lip syncing to it. And doing the, you know, the pantomiming the actions, you know, <laughs> what you saw was, it wasn't, that was Andy. That wasn't a comedian 
if, you know, now we, we would call somebody like Andy a performance artist. Right. But he really was just a, a really laid back, very soft spoken guy with a wicked sense of humor, brother. I'm going to tell you what. He had a wicked sense of humor. And he was a really, really nice guy. And I was honored to be able to know him and and talk to him and go to a, a couple of wrestling matches with him, even if I had to wear a dress and makeup. <laughs> <laughs> that Spectrum show must have been headlined by Backland versus Killer Khan. I'll tell you what it was. Someone. I'll tell you what it was. It was Hulk Hogan and Ricky Steamboat wow. versus Johnny Valiant and Mr. Fuji. Wow. Wow. And I still have the pictures. And the uh, wow. the the loudest loudest fan in attendance was a really ugly old lady. Is that what you're telling me? No, that would have been the old man at ringside shaking his cane at all the heels as they were coming out the dressing room. You, I, please tell me there's at least a picture or something from from some of those nights. If there is, I don't have one. Oh. <laughs> I've got pictures of the matches, but I don't have pictures of us. <laughs> I, I could, but I'm sure somewhere, in fact, Mike Messier, here's your homework. Sure. Uh-oh. You're going to have to scrub all the Spectrum Wrestling from 1987 to 1989. Okay. That's a lot of Spectrum Wrestling. Yeah. We're there somewhere. Well, it would have been, uh, I think it would have been before that. I think it would have been 84 cause, uh, or 85, early 85. When Andy passed away, I think, in mid-85. and Because um, I think Andy was alive for the first oh, WrestleMania. Right. You know what? My time frame is wrong. So I got to think that you probably, if it was Johnny V and Mr. Fuji as a tag team. Yeah, that, you know what? It was, it was, I'll tell you what it was. The, the network that broadcast it and was in Philadelphia was called Prism. Okay. And they went out of business in 86. Right. Okay. So you're absolutely right. It predates that time frame. And Steamboat, for his part, it, it wasn't until about summer of 85 that Ricky Steamboat was a big deal in the WWF because he had to build himself up a little bit. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I'm thinking that that match you guys saw was soon be really the last eight months or so of uh, Andy's life. Yeah, it wasn't long after that. I remember Hulk beat the Sheik at the MSG in, I think, 84. January 23rd, 1984, yes. 84. And I know that Hulk only had the belt for a couple of years when Andy and I went to the Spectrum and saw he and Ricky Steamboat t- tag teaming. I'm looking it up. And it wasn't long after that. Maybe couple couple months, maybe, because Andy Coffin yeah. died in the spring of 84. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't long after that at all. Long, It, it wasn't was, long at all. J- January was the... Monsoon's famous call. It might have been one of the last. Yeah, it might have been one of the last times I actually saw him. To be honest, can I suggest? Was it? uh, Could have been March thirtieth, nineteen eighty six, and could the match have been actually Hulk Hogan and Ricky Steamboat versus Mister Fuji, Johnny V, and Magnificent Morocco? Two on. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, March thirtieth, nineteen eighty six. Okay. I've got the we got the match on YouTube. Wow. 
It's I there. Okay. I don't, I don't mess around. I, I know. I knew Messier would find it. Yeah. yeah. Were you guys? It a, yeah, it sure was. It sure I'll send was. you the link. It's uh, it's it's readily available on YouTube. I don't want to give away the uh, link in case Vince is listening and he shuts us down before people can see it. <laughs> Man, I, ju- I just I just got here. Don't get us a cease and desist on my second show. That's right. No, that won't happen. <laughs> Angelo, was it, were you guys sitting close to the ring? No, we were actually in the mezzanine level up about midway. Okay. And um, it, was, just... the, it was on an angle like we were probably like midway here uh, on the on the incline. And then there was the spectrum had two upper balconies. It was it was uh, ringside. Um, and there was like a kind of a hockey a hockey rink setup. There were seats beyond that, and then it would incline. Then you had the second, the second balcony, and then the third balcony, like what they call the nosebleed section. Mm-hmm. And we were in the middle of that, that incline. Okay, well, wait a second, buddy, because now we we have some conspiracy going on here. Uh-oh. Because I just looked up that Andy Kaufman was reported to have passed away May 16th, 1984. So either Angelo was hiding a, a, a falsely deceased Andy Kaufman in the Philadelphia Spectrum in 1986, and Andy did not pass away, and we've uncovered this conspiracy that our buddy Angelo is in, or Angelo, you might be merging two memories into one, Probably. I remember specifically Hulk Hogan and Ricky Steamboat. That I'm, I remember. I'm going to sure. keep looking for you, buddy, because I'm thinking maybe you saw Hulk Hogan. That much I remember, because Ricky I still have the pictures. Yes, so I'm going to look into this for you. We'll figure this that out. I remember. No, I know. So anyway, so while, while Mike is doing the, his, his hunt, <laughs> the Baron, Baron Von Kelleher, what's up on the ref's roundtable? Um, news and, um, can you be a little bit more excited? This is a video <laughs> podcast. Can you be more animated, more excited? I'm saving it for the, the round table. No, it's, it's, um, he's so low key, Dan. He really is. Yeah. I, I'm still blown away by that mustache. You I mean, should have seen the beard. He had this bruiser Brody beard going on. <laughs> Um, yeah, now no. he looks like now he looks like H.B. Haggerty. <laughs> we are uh, we're going to be talking about just the, the happenings of the week. More people getting um, released by WWE. Yeah, well, let's talk a little bit about that now. Who else was released? Um, that I don't know about. Well, I, I don't know who you knew. Well, the, of course, the big list that the. That they put out was it Sunday or Monday? Yeah. The the second round of names was all NXT talent. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, who was on, uh, Danny? Who was on that uh, that list? Well, it was Canellis. It was uh, Maria. And- oh, Maria Canellis and her yeah. husband. Yeah, and, and Maria and Mike. Yeah. Like wow. a lot. A lot of the NXT guys, I hadn't. 
Uh, one of the big ones I thought was the um, I can never say his name right. He's he's billed as a Russian, and he fought Keith Lee at um, NXT Takeover. Oh, Rusev? Oh, you're you're talking about Dominic Dijakovic. Yeah. Dijakovic. Yeah, no, Dijakovic oh, okay. is still. I thought he was still with the company. He just yeah. he was just on NXT last no, night. I, no, there's another guy with a with a name that that's. Uh, I think I'm getting a mix. I'm getting him mixed up. But there was somebody else who had a kind of similar name. Um, not Rusev. No, it's not, well, not Rusev. Oh, yeah, Rusev got released. Well, here's the question: Rusev got released. Did Lana get released with him? No, she's still because no. oh. <laughs> Vince McMahon doesn't find Rusev as attractive in the miniskirt as he does Lana. Oh, really? Though so they kept Lana. Oh, that would be interesting. Well, Vince McMahon's always. I mean, going back to the early days he's always had a penchant or i don't even know what to call it a, a fetish a, a, yeah exact fetish is a good word for breaking up real life couples well and he doesn't like marriage that, that's a shoot. no the, i'm gonna tell you shoot okay i'm gonna let you in on the mind of vince vince doesn't like marriage really? he doesn't like his own he doesn't like others i believe it it's the truth I believe it. He, and he he will break up couples every chance he gets, especially real life couples. Yeah, well, that was old. Uh, uh, Randy Savage said that that he he said the worst mistake he ever made was doing a angle with his wife. He said Vince talked him into doing an angle with his wife, and by the time it was over, he didn't have a wife anymore. Uh, yeah. Well, Vince likes to play divide and conquer. Mm-hmm. Vince knows that there's power in numbers. If a couple is strong enough to survive Vince McMahon, they're going to make money. But the lore of Vince's money is too strong to one person or another. Yeah. That's that's the bottom line. And I'll go on record as saying that. Hmm. So what else is going on, Mike? What at the uh, with the round table? That's is, is that it? Um that's pretty much it. I mean, we're we're uh, going to Talk about Raw and AEW preview SmackDown and kind of kind of get set for Money in the Bank because you know this whole Money in the Bank thing is taking on a, a much bigger twist than it has in the past. So it's it's I'm really looking like I've always looked forward to Money in the Bank, but I'm really looking forward to Money in the Bank this time around. How are they going to play it off this time with the Money in the Bank uh, with the what they're doing is is you have to climb the corporate the ladder. Corporate ladder. That's what I was getting at. <laughs> yeah. So what they're what they're going to do is, um, yeah, I guess you start on the bottom floor and you fight, and then you go up a floor and you fight and you keep going until you get to the roof, and that's where the contract is going to be. So yeah, and you know what we talked about this last night. And, you know, of course, the millennials don't understand this. You know, old guys like me do. But that whole corporate ladder thing, guess what? It's been done before. Yeah, you, mentioned that. Been done. you mentioned that last night. Who, who did that? <clears throat> the National Wrestling Alliance slash WCW. Because I, I know they had, um, uh, what? Or nine, what a ninety-four somewhere in there. The the multi-tiered cage you had to fight your way. It was Hogan Tower and Savage against the Alliance. Yeah, the Tower of Doom. Yeah, the Thank Tower you. of Doom. Well, you're talking about, yeah, you had to fight 
fight through every level to get to get out. But I don't remember there being a fight through a building to the, to a prize on the roof. Peach Tree Center in Atlanta, Georgia. Now the home of CNN. Oh. It was once just a small five-story building. Mm-hmm. It's now a mega structure that you uh, you literally had to take an elevator to get to the next elevator. <laughs> it's a big place. Um, but it's been done before. You know, look, remember something. There's nothing original in wrestling, and I have tried to drive this point home. There's nothing original in wrestling. It's all been done. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you have to be either old enough to remember it or a historian enough to have researched it. But it's all been done. In some form or fashion, the, the quote, climb the corporate ladder match has been done and, and redone. You know, the story's been told and retold. And you can only tell it so many times. Yeah. You know, the, I mean, what, what they do, you know, to answer your question, Dan, what they do is they're putting their own little WWE twist on it. You know, their own, their spin. Right. And, and that's know? one and thing. It'll probably oh. culminate on the, on the roof of Titan tower. And that's been done before too. Yeah. Lest us, we forget that they had a ring set up on the top of Titan tower before mm-hmm. and, uh, and shot promos up there. And, uh, and actually at one point did a couple of matches up there and people forget that. But they all remember the commercial. Right. They all remember the commercial of the the helicopters flying overhead with the spotlights down on the ring and the big building and the whole. It's all been done. Steve Austin and Bret Hart throwing punches with the fire in the background. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And that's that's something the WWE has been famous for for pretty much ever is rewriting history. To where wrestling outside of their entity doesn't exist. I mean, you saw it with uh, you exactly. know, some, of the, some of the matches they had with the Crown Jewel. Like, oh, the first women's match in Saudi Arabia. No, the first WWE match in Saudi Arabia. Women had wrestled yeah. there before. Uh, yeah. NWA went to North Korea. Like, it's hardly the first promotion in a, in a hostile yeah. country. How, sure. you know, uh, the, they talk about the women's revolution. And, and it's the first pay-per-view headlined by women. Except that TNA, yeah. Ring of Honor, New Japan have had women main events going back to the, to the, you know, the, late, to the 80s. How, you need you know, to remember it, something, Dan. History is written by the winner. Yeah. yeah. Well, and to, let's be also be fair here. The the words they choose are chosen very carefully. So to say this is the first pay-per-view headlined by women, for them, it's accurate. They're not they're not necessarily saying ever. They're saying yeah. you know, it's That's like some... you know, you Dan in, in Virginia, there's a furniture store called Haynes. Right. And every week it's this is our one time a year sale. And it's the sale only comes around once. Yeah, because this week only comes around once a year, but every week there's a new sale. So Mm -hmm. it's all about how you word it and how you put a spin on it and what people what you can make people assume. Yeah. Yeah. It's very political. You're right. In the sense of as as long as you choose your words carefully, it's the the, I'm not lying. You know, the definition of is kind of thing. Yeah. Well, but but I have to jump in real quick, Baron, because sometimes uh, the WWE commentators, whether it's Michael Cole or whoever else, sometimes they slip, well, okay, and they say things that are historically inaccurate, 
to further the WWE cause. And nine times out of 10 or seven times out of 10, they might say the real thing. This is the first WWE women's match in Saudi Arabia, but sometimes they'll slip and they'll say, this is the first ever women's match in Saudi Arabia. Mm -hmm. And then if someone like you or me or any of us correct them on it, they might cover their ass or they, they may not choose to, because the reality is they don't consider anything non WWE to be as valid as themselves. And very true. True. But I did, I did want to follow up real quick, Angelo. I think I might have solved this mystery for you. There was a Philadelphia PA Spectrum show on March 19th, 1983, televised on the Prism Network featuring Gorilla Monsoon and Dick Graham on commentary. Yep, I'm Dick Graham, yep. Yep, this yep. might have been what you saw with Andy. Uh, you had matches such as SD Jones versus Baron Mikhail Sakula. Uh, you had Jose Estrada versus Pizza and Chez. You had a midgets tag team match. You had Ray Stevens versus Jules Strongboat to a double countout, which is unusual. Uh, yeah. Tony Guerrilla got one over on Johnny Rods with a sunset flip. Intercontinental yeah. title match, which has been a great match. Don Morocco versus Rocky Johnson with uh, mm-hmm. Joey Morella, Gorilla's son, as the ref. Yeah, uh, That was released on the best of the WWF Volume 2. You had superstar Billy Graham versus Salvatore Belemo, and this was the main event. See if this, it's a similar main event to what you were thinking of two years later. This was the main event in 83, um, a year before uh, Andy passed away. Andre the Giant, Jimmy Snuka, and WWF World Champion Bob Backlund defeated Big John Studd, WWF Tag Team Champion Afa, and Captain Lou Albano, substituting for Sika, in a best out of three fall, three out of five falls match, uh, three falls to zero with special guest referee Sweet Hansen and Arnold Skoland at ringside. Mm-hmm. And because it has that manager element, you were thinking of that um, Mr. Fuji Johnny V match a couple of years later. But I'm thinking what might have happened, Angelo, is you kind of merge two memories into one. I'm thinking I'm this- going to have to pull my picture out and look at it. I yeah, really am. Check out the, I put on the sidebar of our Skype uh, recording tonight, I put in the text, the whole card. I'm thinking this is probably what you saw with Andy, because it would make sense, because you did mention Dick Graham on commentary and the PRISM network. You said that before I went into this research. That's just my theory. I'm going to have to check that. I I, I still have the picture. I'm going to see if there's a timestamp on it. Yeah, Yeah, I'm going to have to look up that. See, see if the videos are there because that sounds like a hell of a card. Yeah, well, I'm gonna tell you something. Their house shows at the Spectrum rivaled anything that WrestleMania would have. Mm-hmm. They really have. Well, Baron von Kelleher, I am going to let you go, and uh, I will uh, look for a refs roundtable. What? Maybe this weekend? I can't hear you. We're on video. Yes. There you go. <laughs> I got to make you more camera savvy, bud. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm only on TV, whatever. You know? oh, yeah, but you're not real camera savvy. <laughs> All right. I love you too, you fucker. <laughs> All right, Mikey. Take care, brother. Bye, guys. See you. Take care. All right, guys. It's just the three of us now. All right. Mike Messier, what's coming up with you? What do you got going on? Well, I did want to mention, you know, and hopefully Vince McMahon won't shut this whole thing down, but but because of our listeners, 
He won't. I do this a lot, guys. I go to YouTube. I go to other nefarious sources of content, and I find these old house shows of WWF wrestling that were uh, televised for the local markets, and they have all types of exciting matches that you didn't see on Saturday mornings at 11 o'clock. Yeah. You're basically seeing the feed of the house shows from places like the Spectrum, Madison Square Garden, my old stomping grounds of Madison, uh, of the Capitol Center. And uh, you're right. This These shows sound so good. Mm-hmm. Um, they are good. They really were amazing. You know, yeah. that, they really, that really were. The first time you and I spoke, Angela, we brought up uh, our old friend George and some of the matches he recorded. Oh, sure. As as good as, as YouTube and some of those independent sources, some of the better matches I've ever seen were somebody, some fan recording or some minor recording that wasn't yeah. the official broadcast. And actually, George is going to be with us on June 18th. I actually spoke to him. Okay. And uh, we confirmed his date. George Pantis is the uh, archivist and historian of Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling, uh, a la Jim Crockett. And uh, he owns, to this very day, all of the original footage, every photograph. He owns it all. And uh, we're going to have him on to talk about the glory days of the Crockett era. Wow. Yeah. And, and I know, Mikey, George it'll got be... stories. Yeah, George. Oh, my God. George is like a treasure trove of stories. So that's going to be Mike Messier and uh, Dan the Man and myself. Um good. The uh, ref's roundtable is still up in the air. We're going to have maybe two or three more episodes. And I I will probably end up um, re-altering the ref's roundtable into a morph it into another show. uh, Because we're going to do some more non-wrestling stuff on the uh, network. So, Mikey, uh, plug your your social media, your website, and then I will say goodnight to you. Well, I think I just found this match, by the way, from the Spectrum, so I want to send you that <laughs> link, Angelo, that main event, at least, of Andre Backlund and Snooker versus Stud, Albano, and Offa. Uh, in the meantime, uh, MikeMessier.com is always the best way to find me. On the Wrestling with the Future uh, YouTube channel, you can see my new personal podcast, Life Lessons with Mikey Messier. Thanks, Angelo, and thanks, everybody, for watching that. Uh, my uh, my theater festival, Avalonia Seven Theater Festival, uh, just decided the victors. The victors are now announced on distancefromavalon.com. Uh, go to the top and click on the theater section. And uh, the film festival, Avalonia Film Festival, is still accepting submissions. And uh, even though of this time of worldwide crisis, uh, because of the power of the internet and these websites that I established years ago still able to promote and honor the winners of both my film festival and theater festival, because uh, although the arts right now are threatened because we can't interact in public as much, right. it's still important and vital to keep that stuff going. Sure. But uh, thanks for having me on the show, Angelo and Dan. Always Boy, love that. Joe, you're part of the family kid. Oh, thank you. And uh, Dan, that, that, that background you have there, I really enjoy seeing all <laughs> those wrestlers. I, I feel no offense to Terry Taylor, but, Without his red mohawk, you know, clucking his head like a chicken, I feel like... I know, right? <laughs> well, Mike, take care, my friend. Uh, I will see you... Uh, let me see, when do I... I will see you again. Um, Tuesday night, we should point out, Tuesday night, uh, May the 28th, 
I'm sorry. April the 28th. Okay. I have a non-wrestling show with Steve McCoy, the country's foremost Tom Jones impersonator, who is a childhood friend of mine. And we're going to talk about news, politics, coronavirus, aliens, Bigfoot, conspiracy theories, and anything else that we decide to talk about. Nice. So that will be, uh, but the next time I see you two gentlemen yeah. will be, excuse me, I'm back for a second, folks, will be on April the 30th. And uh, that will be um, a special surprise show. I'm not going to tell you about it. Sounds Uh-oh. good. All right. Mikey, have a good night, my friend. We're going to take a Thanks a lot, day. guys. Have a great Bye night, care. Angelo. Thanks. You bet. All right. Just you and me, Dan. Sounds good. So what do you think of that conversation with J.J. McGuire? Uh, that's impressive. I mean, I, I know I said the same thing about Karen, but it's it, it's crazy to hear how, for lack of a better word, how how simple some of it was. Like you think, I mean, these these classic songs that so perfectly fit a character. I pictured, you know, uh, a room with you know the floor covered in in crumpled papers, and they're up all night. To think it was literally just Jimmy Hart banging on a trash can, click, some lyrics, music yeah. hit, and 10 minutes later, we're in the production truck, bam, hit, bam, hit. How yeah. easy he made it sound. I mean, I don't know, maybe he's a good storyteller, but but to be able to pump out so much quality music literally in minutes is, is crazy to think. It's remarkable, isn't it? It really, really is. Absolutely. I'll tell you what, and we, we have to bring him back because, well, first of all, he's a friend of mine. Mm-hmm. And secondly, we've, you know, and I keep saying it, we barely scratched the surface. Right. With J.J. McGuire, there's so much there. You know, his book is like, if you've never read his book, I encourage everyone to read his book called Hollywood, My Life in Heaven Town. My Life in Heaven Town, you said. Yeah, okay. It's called Hollywood, My Life in Heaven Town. It's a great book. Um, Let's talk about some of our upcoming guests. Now, you're... Uh, you're a young guy, so uh, some of these names might be over your head, youngin. So, uh, <laughs> but let's talk about the, in May. We've got some super guests coming up in May. A uh, young man named Magnum T.A. What do you know about Magnum T.A.? Uh, Magnum T.A. was a territory face when I was growing up. Uh, related to Jake Roberts, if I remember correctly. Um, no, or, no, uh, through marriage, right? He he's Tessa Blanchard's stepfather. Yes, yeah that 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 connection, and he was well. They they had a term for him. I'm trying to remember. There was a big push. Um, they I can't. Uh oh, get down. As a cat, <laughs> I, I can't remember the the term they had for him, but there was a wave of these of the baby faces at the time that were just all young, attractive men. You had you know Terry Taylor and Magnum TA and the Rock and Roll Express, and and it was just every yeah you they were, were all they were all studs. Yeah, th- th- that maybe that that's a good word, but yeah, I, I remember him from that. But he didn't. He didn't travel through some of the areas I grew up, so I saw him more in the magazines and the tapes than I ever did on TV. Yeah. Um, on May 6th, we've got Evan Ginsberg and Bill Pierce from the WWE. You know who Evan Ginsberg is? I have heard that name, 
He's the associate producer of The Wrestler, starring Mickey Rourke. That's right. We spoke on the phone about him. Yes, because he, he, he yeah, he's also he he's also the associate producer of uh, of Three Hundred and Fifty Days. Yes, which I watched the other night after your recommendation. Phenomenal. Yeah, good movie. Great, yes. great, great movie. And with him is going to be Bill Pierce. Bill Pierce worked for the WWF under the name Chris Michaels. Chris Michaels. Yeah, Chris Michaels, and uh, and he also worked under the name Bill Pierce. He was an enhan- enhancement talent, but he tag teamed uh, with um, Tony Garea and tag teamed with Tito Santana. Oh, nice! And had a little run there. On May seventh, the genius Leaping Lanny Poffo will be here. What do you know about Lanny Poffo? Other other than one of the most articulate people I've ever heard in my life. Um, for, I mean, uh, completely under, oh, I don't want to say underrated. Everybody loved him, but I, I underutilized for, for as talented as he was. Good I mean, term. Yeah. Underutilized for sure. Yes. I mean, really, even though it was, you mentioned, you know, sometimes you get characters that are almost a joke. Uh, when he, when he had the genius gimmick, I thought that was one of the best heel managers I've ever seen in my life and it was it was almost treated like uh, an afterthought to the to the rest of the roster but I know amazing talent uh, I look forward it to it might surprise to you who came up with the genius gimmick really Pat Patterson oh well that may that man's credited with a lot of the ideas then I'm telling you what now uh we have on May 12th flying Brian Pillman Jr. Okay. And he will be with us on the twelfth and the twenty sixth. Nice. I've I've seen him. He he wrestled for VCW, the promotion George works for, the local yeah. Vanguard Image Wrestling, the the local sure. around here. He's wrestled here a few times. Oh yeah, sure. It's now we have a couple of guys uh, coming on that week that are celebrity wrestler lookalikes. Really? We've got Brandon Savage and Randy Hogan. <laughs> Now, now that, let that's, me tell that you about would... Brandon Savage. If you saw the Dark Side of the Ring, mm-hmm. the Macho Man episode, yeah, the uh, the match made in heaven, yeah, Brandon Savage was Randy Savage in that show. Oh, okay. He was in all the vignettes. He will be okay. here on the fourteenth. We will have Danny Cage, the owner of the Monster Factory, oh, the nice. first commercially. Available wrestling school opened up by my friend, the late Larry Sharp, pretty boy Larry Sharp. Mm-hmm. Uh, we will have a wrestling icon on March, I mean, sorry, May 19th. That's Doc Diamond. And I want you to do some homework about Doc Diamond. He's a great, great wrestler from the 60s and 70s. Okay. And, the, and, and a little bit run in the 80s. Uh, he was a great manager, heel manager. And a hell of a worker back in the day. Then we're going to do a special roundtable on May 21st. That's going to be the Dino Bravo episode to follow up the dark side of the ring. Okay. We're going that's to have the, our own. The, the deep dive, I think you talked yeah. about. Yeah. Okay. Yep. That's going to be our, our own unique take on it. And then Brian Pillman Jr. will come back on the 26th to uh, fill out the month of May. And just a, a couple of. Side notes for June, we've got Sam Houston for two interviews, Uh, June 9th and June 11th. Sam Houston will be here. Mm -hmm. 
And on June the 16th, Jimmy Snooker's very best friend in the whole world, Phil LaRusso, will be here making a very, very rare podcast appearance. In fact, it's his first podcast ever, and he will break his silence about the man he knew. Okay. And uh, But we will respect him and not talk about Allentown, Pennsylvania, and we will not broach that subject. Understand well, that we'll talk about the human side, the man, Jimmy Snooker, the man, okay. the myth, the person, and that's just partly in June. So we've got a lot more to do. I don't want to give too many, too many I, giveaways right now. I, I look, I enjoy the surprises. Well, tell everybody your social and where can they reach you and how can they get a hold of you? Well, I have the uh, the man dot. WWTF, both on uh, Outlook.com and Twitter. So I will, I'm trying to get more active in the wrestling discussions on Twitter. My The man page is obviously new. Okay. So hit, hit me up well, there and uh, check it out. I, uh, I will tell you, I've gotten some amazing feedback on you. Everybody likes you. You're personable. You know your stuff. And that's what I'm looking for. I've, I've gotten some kind words on social media as well. I appreciate the platform. And they love your mutton chops, and your sideburns <laughs> are the thing of uh, of Facebook now. Everybody's talking about them. There you go. Did you see I put a picture of Rico Constantino up there? I did, yes. I, I, I Like you said, maybe uh, one, one day Rico and I can get the chop off. Well, you and Rico will have that opportunity sooner than you think. Oh, I like it. Because he's coming back on. Wonderful. Well, for Dan Demand Sebastiano, I am Psychic Medium Angelo. Till we see you again, folks, take care, happy wrestling.